You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Amen. Uh, turn with me to Colossians 1. Remain standing if you're able. Colossians chapter 1. beginning in verse 15. Who is Jesus? That's the question. Who is Jesus? Beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. We begin our Advent series this morning with a sermon from the book of Colossians. The question as we have been raising, the question we are seeking to answer this entire month is who is Jesus? And while that may appear to be a basic question with some predictable answers, I can assure you this morning that some of what we'll discover in our time in Colossians chapter 1 are truths that soar beyond human imagination and have the potential to impact both the way you view Christ and Christmas and all of your life. In fact, I would argue that this is the most fundamental question we could ever ask. Who is Jesus? The Bible asserts that the answer to this question is a matter of life and death. It is a matter of heaven and hell. It is a matter of hope and hopelessness. Who is Jesus? The scriptures are full of answers to this question. In fact, in one sense, the whole Bible is interested in answering that one question. Who is Jesus? But perhaps there is no greater Christology, no higher Christology, no higher articulation in all of the Bible and answering the question, who is Jesus, than what we find in Colossians chapter 1. Paul the Apostle wrote this letter to a church in the first century, a church in a city called Colossae. He wrote this letter in part to correct their misunderstandings about the sufficiency of Jesus. They had a teaching that had gotten into the church that was suggesting that maybe Jesus is not enough. After all, the dark, evil powers in the world are are big and scary, and the, the spiritual conflict and challenge that we have in life are real, and maybe Jesus isn't enough. Maybe we need an archangel. Maybe we need something else to sort of sow into this Christ and him crucified gospel. Maybe Jesus is not powerful enough to handle the dark powers in the world that are warring against me and the church. Maybe you feel that this morning. 
Maybe you feel that whatever's warring against your desire, warring against your life, that Jesus perhaps is not enough, that you need a little something else. And so Paul is writing this letter in part to take on this false teaching that was suggesting that the church needed something else, a little edge. As I've already said, the verses that we'll cover this morning and into the next weeks are some of the highest claims in all of the Bible regarding the identity and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Paul is answering that question. Is Jesus enough? With a resounding yes, he is more than enough. And he does so with some of the highest prose in all of the Bible. Now you and I might think, or be tempted to think, that this problem... Seeing Christ as less than enough is a primitive first century problem. This is, I mean, this is 2,000 years ago. Clearly the church, especially the church in America, is as advanced as we are. This is not a problem that we have in the church today. Why are we even asking the question? Why are we even turning to this ancient book to answer the question? This is a primitive problem. Well, the unfortunate reality, beloved is that we in the evangelical church in America today need this letter from Paul more than ever. Perhaps more than ever needed in our own country's young history. We need the answer to this question, who is Jesus? According to a 2022 survey called the State of Theology, this is a survey done every two years, concluded that 43% of American evangelicals agree that Jesus was a great teacher but was not, in fact, God. 43% of American evangelicals agree that Jesus was a great teacher but was not, in fact, God. Just two years ago, in 2020, that number from the same study was 30% which is an astounding number all on its own. This is not polling Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons. This is polling American evangelical Bible-believing Christians. 2020 was 30% believed that Jesus wasn't God. In this year, 43% believed that he was a great teacher but was not, in fact, God. So in answering this question, who is Jesus? Answering this question is not reserved for the primitive first century church. No, the church in America needs to stare this question right in the eye. Because if we fail to answer this question with unswerving clarity, we cease to have a gospel altogether. This is a big deal. This is a right now issue. And this is why we are turning to this question Who is Jesus? It is the most fundamental question we could ever ask in all of the universe. And the answer to this question, according to the Bible, has eternal consequences. For the remainder of our time, we'll turn to this Christ hymn. Throughout church history, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, has been known as Christ's hymn. It is a hymn, most likely a song that was written that actually predates the writing of Colossians. So most scholars, including Doug Moo and others, conclude that Paul took this familiar hymn or confession that the church in Colossae would have known and dropped it right in his letter. 
so as to say to the church in Colossae, this is what you already know to be true. We've sang this song before. This is our confession. This is who Jesus is. Don't get it twisted. Don't get confused. Jesus is more than enough for you. And so for our time this morning, we'll only cover the first three verses, verses 15, 16, and 17. But for all of the month of December, we're going to move through this Christ hymn together, answering the question over and over and over, who is Jesus? Not so that we're not merely among the 43% who don't get it. That's not enough. If you were here last week, mere theology is not enough. We want this question to, to burn into our hearts and minds, to pierce our hearts so that worship and adoration comes out of us, not just lip service in right theology. And so our sermon outline this morning is very simple. It is the first three verses. Point one is verse 15. Point two is verse 16. And point three is verse 17. So point one, answering the question, who is Jesus? Look at verse 15 again with me. Who is Jesus? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. First, Paul says he is the image, icon. That word image in the Greek is the word icon, like the camera. Christ is the image of the otherwise invisible God. Now listen, there is a sense in which you and I, human beings, are created in the image of God. We learn this from the Genesis narrative. In Genesis chapter 1, we, we learn that God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So therefore, there is a sense in which men and women image God's own likeness. Jesus, too, on that first Advent night when he was born, was a true human being. He was born in the image of God. However, this text in Colossians chapter 1 and texts throughout the New Testament suggest that Jesus is more than a human being who is imaging the likeness of God. He is more than a human being. In fact, the New Testament argument, and in, in fact, Paul's argument in Colossians is that Jesus is the full and complete image of God's divine nature. For instance, look briefly, just, just glance at Colossians 1.19. I won't steal the thunder from next week, but look at Colossians 1.19, just a couple verses ahead. Paul says, for in him, that is Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now that has never been said of any other human being on the face of the planet. That all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in the Son. How much, Paul? How much of the fullness of God? All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in in Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews writes that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Therefore, listen, when Paul writes that Christ is the image of the invisible God, listen, he is saying that Jesus is the enfleshment. He's the embodiment 
of God himself. This is what we celebrate at Advent. This is what Christmas is all about. The enfleshment of God, the embodiment of God, the otherwise invisible God is now clearly seen. How much of him? All the fullness of him in the Son. Paul in Colossians 1 is merely echoing John in John chapter 1 verse 18 when John says no one has ever seen God. He is invisible. The only God who is at the Father's side, he, Jesus, has made him known. So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Jesus is the most complete revelation of who God is. If you're wondering, if, you're, if you are taxed with the question, what is God like? What is he like? What's his nature? What, is he, what would he say if he were here? How would he act? What would his posture be? How would he treat men and women and children? How would he treat societies? What would he think of kings and kingdoms? Paul says, you don't need to look any further than Jesus Christ. He is the fullest and most complete revelation of who God is to us. John Calvin writes this for, quote, for in Christ, God shows us his righteousness. He shows us his goodness his wisdom, his power. In short, Calvin says, God shows us in Christ his entire self. We must therefore beware of seeking him elsewhere for everything that would set itself off as a representation of God apart from Christ will be an idol. So who is Jesus? He's the fullness of God. That's why we affirm with glad hearts the Nicene Creed, which proclaims this. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten of the Father before ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten and not made of the same essence as the Father. Who is Jesus? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That second phrase, the firstborn of all creation, is not referring to chronology. It's not referring to, Paul knows obviously that Adam and Eve were first, the first created human beings in human history. Paul is not referring to chronology here. Instead, Paul is speaking of Christ's firstborn rank. He is the firstborn. He has the most glory. He has the firstborn rank. Jesus is the only begotten son of the Father. There is no one like him, and there will never be another like him ever again. He ranks higher than any other earthly being. Why? Because he is the embodiment of God himself. He has eternally existed in the past and he will eternally exist in the future. He is the eternal begotten son of the father. He is God himself. That is Paul's argument. Therefore, he ranks first. He is the firstborn of all creation. So who is Jesus? Jesus is God made visible. He is the truest and fullest revelation of God to man. 
And therefore, Jesus ranks higher than any being that has ever been and ever will be. He is the firstborn of all creation. That is who he is. And that's point one. Point two, verse 16, who is Jesus? For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus is not another created thing in a world full of created things. We would have to throw this text out among others to make that conclusion. Jesus is not another created thing among a world of created things. No, according to Paul the Apostle, it is by Jesus and it is through Jesus that all things were created. This is as clear as day in Paul's theology. There is no debate in Paul's thinking. Only God is creator. Jesus is truly God. Therefore, Jesus is the creator of all things. That's the argument. Only God is creator. Jesus is truly God. Therefore, Jesus is the creator of all things. Who is Jesus? He's the creator. He is the exact imprint of God, and he is the creator of absolutely everything. R.C. Lucas writes this, Jesus is none other than the creator entering his own creation. Think of this. Jesus Christ, as we celebrate Christmas, what's happening there is the creator is entering his creation. So that he has only to speak and it is done. Also, his word of command has creative power to produce obedience even from the dead, end quote, which is why we're here. Why did Jesus walk on water? If not to show he has authority over it. Why didn't he just hold his breath for 20 minutes so that we'd be like, wow, he can really hold his breath. Instead, he chose to walk on top of the water. Why? Because he created it. He has authority over it. Why did he heal the diseased and the lame if not to show that the creator has entered his own creation to restore what was broken? Everywhere Jesus went, he healed. Why did he do that? Because he's the creator. He's the creator and he wanted to heal what was broken. He said, I didn't make it that way. And so he says, come to me. Was not his glorious resurrection from the grave a testimony to the fact that he has the power to lay down his life and he has the power to take it back up again? Who is Jesus? He is the creator of all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Do you hear what Paul is saying to the church in Colossae? Don't look for another. You don't need an angel. You don't need an archangel. You don't need an army. You don't need might. You have Jesus. He's not a, cre he's not a creator in partial. 
He doesn't just create the things that are seen. He creates the things that are unseen. He is creator God in totality. You have Jesus. You have enough. As Abraham Kuyper famously writes, there is not a square inch in the whole creation over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So Paul is saying to the Colossians, do you know who you are worshiping? And now the Spirit through this preserved text is saying to Roots Community Church, do you know who you are worshiping? When we raise his name in our voices, when we acknowledge his lordship, do you know who you're worshiping? He doesn't need any help. He doesn't need an archangel. He doesn't need an army. He has total authority over absolutely everything, which again includes anything you and I are facing, no matter how big and scary it may feel. And I've felt some new things these last few months that are big and scary. But what this text says to me and to all of us that are threatened, you feel threatened. You don't need to go outside of Christ for help. He's Lord over all. And then at the end of verse 16, Paul just, it's almost like he just, he just tips his hand a little bit at the end of verse 16 to show us why everything was created. Why? Why was everything created, Paul? The end of verse 16. All things were created through him and what? For him. (laughs) If we said this about any other person, it would just be utterly blasphemous. You just don't hang out with someone like that. (laughs) All things were created through me and, by the way, for me. But Paul has... He has no reservation, no hesitation to say that all things were created through him and for him. And by the way, Jesus, when he walked the planet, had no reservation for people falling down and worshiping him as the God of the universe. He doesn't say like the angel in Revelation, get up, get up, get up. You shall not worship me. He lets it happen. Why? Because he's God. That's why. And all things were created through him. And for him, why was everything made that was made? For the praise and exaltation of Jesus Christ. Why do you and I exist? That's the most fundamental question of the human existence. Why do we exist? For the praise and exaltation of Jesus Christ. What will bring you the greatest joy in your entire life to lift up the name of Jesus Christ? It is not finances. Find a rich person. Find a rich person. They will tell you, especially a Christian, it is not finances that will bring you the most joy. Find somebody that has the most fulfilling family life, the most fulfilling marriage, the most fulfilling whatever. It is not the thing that will satisfy. The greatest thing that will satisfy us the most is to bring praise and honor to Jesus Christ. All things were made through him and all things were made for him. This is why at the end of the age in Revelation chapter 5, we read this in verse 11 and following. This is coming. This is, this is coming. This is not mere poetry. This is not hyperbole. This is reality. And this will soon be your reality if you are in Christ. At the end of the age, John writes, 
Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands. It's a thunderclap of voices saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every, every living creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Who is Jesus? He is the creator of everything. He is the creator of everything. Everything through him was created Him. Uh, was created by him and everything that was created was created for him to the praise of his glorious grace. So that is point two, verse 16. He is the creator of absolutely everything. Finally, verse 17. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Paul concludes this little section of God's creative power by drawing our attention to the fact that Jesus is not only the creator of all things, but he is also the sustainer of all things. He not only creates the universe, but he holds it all together. Paul uses the present perfect indicative. He is presently, right now, in this very moment, holding everything Together, from our call to worship again, the author of Hebrews says it this way. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. The same voice, the same word that hushed a hurricane when the disciples were freaking out. The same word, the same voice that gave sight to the blind, the same word at this very moment that is calming our hearts before the bigness of his majesty is holding all things together. Without Jesus in this very moment holding all things together, planets would lose their orbits. Cells would lose their molecular structure. The oceans would overcome the land. The sun would melt the earth like wax. In Jesus, all things are held together. How big is he? What is this, two sentences, three sentences? We're scratching the surface of his glory and his grace. He is the exact imprint. Who is Jesus? He is the image of the invisible God. He is God fully known. The firstborn of creation, he is the creator of all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And finally, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Paul wants the church in Colossae to be overwhelmed by the bigness of God so that their troubles, their concerns, their real challenges have a shadow cast on them. A shadow of God's might and majesty. 
I've said this to you before, but I love, I love, love going to Yosemite. I love going into the valley. It is beautiful. My favorite part of entering the valley at Yosemite is getting out of the car, getting the kids. Come on, come on. We're going to go stand at the base of El Capitan. We're going to stand right. We're not going to see it from afar. That's glorious enough. But we're going to stand right at the base of it and touch our little hands at the base of it and then look at the scale moving up. And in that moment, what I love about it and what we love about that is we feel so small. And isn't this counterintuitive? We go to places like El Capitan, like the Grand Canyon, like whatever, because we love to feel small. The world says, don't feel small, feel big. You be big. The Bible says, no, 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 feel your smallness. Go to the Grand Canyon, feel your need. Feel that big shadow cast on all of yourself. This is what Paul is doing. He's bringing us to the base of El Cap and saying, look up. You can't even see the top. Do you need another? Do you need Jesus plus something? Oh, no. He is sufficient. Now, as we close, I want us, it's not in, in the text, but it's in the season right now that we're celebrating Christmas. I want us, in light of this, at the, being at the base of El Capitan, looking up, being overwhelmed at the bigness and sufficiency of Christ, I want us to consider for just a moment how he came to us. The creator enters his own creation. Not by flinging stars into their place, though he could. He, he comes to his creation not by altering the space-time continuum, whatever that means. I genuinely don't know what that means. But he doesn't come. He doesn't come like an El Cap. He doesn't come like a Marvel superhero flinging galaxies into existence, though he could because he did. He doesn't come that way. This is the rub. This is the paradox of the Christian faith. The creator enters his own creation as a needy baby needing to be nursed by his mother, learning how to walk and talk. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. The creator of all things, all of creation owes its existence to him, yet he subjects himself to infancy. The very ones who are caring for him are being held together by him. Find me another religion that teaches this. Every other religion, you've heard me say this, ad nauseum, every other religion principally has us working our way to God. Every other religion says, yes, stand at the base of El Capitan and here's your rope, start climbing. No other religion has this theology where God, El Cap, the God creator, comes down to us doesn't hand us ropes to climb the mountain, comes down to us and invites us into him as a helpless babe. Why? 
This is huge. Why does he do this? Why does he enter his own creation in this way? Because he is not just Lord over you, but he loves you. He comes to his own creation in humility, in weakness, because he is not just Lord over you, but he has affection for you. He loves you. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 say this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a Christmas verse of all Christmas verses. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. He descends from the throne. He descends off the top of El Cap. And he belays all the way down to the bottom. And he harnesses us in. And he, through his glory, through his grace, through his might, he pulls us all the way up. He became poor so that we can become rich. He descended so that we can ascend. He is full of grace, and he loves us. This is the great paradox of Christmas. This is where I want to end. The creator God enters his creation to give himself away for those whom he loves. So who is Jesus? Oh man, how do you answer that? He is God. He is the truest revelation of God to man. He is truly man. He was born a babe in humble form. He is full of love. This is the Christmas paradox. Christmas is God with us and God for us. And I pray that as we celebrate throughout this Advent season, that this not only burns in our brains, but burns in our hearts. If you are here this morning, and this is burning in your heart for the first time, Maybe you've seen God as sort of El Cap and big and distant and you've been to the base, you've been there and you, you just, oh, how do you, there's, just, there's no way to scale this thing. But you're hearing now for the first time, maybe with new ears and a new heart to say, God came down for me and you want to walk with him, you want to give your life to him. We want to invite you to do that. We don't, we don't do altar calls here, we're not against them, I've done them before, we might do one right now, I don't know, but if you want to respond to Jesus, in other words, if you're tired of trying to pull yourself up and you want to respond to this gospel, please don't leave here. Don't leave here and then go tug on your own rope again. Come all the way to Jesus, this God who is with us and the God who is for us. For those who are Christians, let this gospel nourish you. Let the heat of this gospel nourish you this holiday season and let the shadow of the supremacy of Christ be cast on all that ails us. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you that you are not only God with us, but you are God 
for us? Jesus, keep answering that question. Keep answering that question and, and sow the answers deep into our hearts, we pray in Christ's good name. Amen.